0: Uh, what's going on, everybody? My name is Arjun Gupta. I play Penny on Sci Fis and the Magicians. And welcome to the Coffee Clatch Podcast. Get ready for a wild ride. The Coffee Clatch Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew The Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino.
2: I'm Christina Lomangino.
1: And we bring magic back into our lives with episode six, A Timeline and Place.
2: Written by Christina Strain and directed by James Conway, IMDb is giving this an 8.2. I have to open up by saying I had completely different thoughts about the episode while watching it and immediately after versus letting some time for things to sink in and realize what I think they're sowing the seeds for in this episode. I don't think... It's a lull, mid-season filler type of episode, which was perhaps my negative first impression of it and mirrored in a lot of the critics' responses. One of them said, is this slow pacing a problem or simply the calculated rhythm of this season of The Magicians? The quiet burn only seems to be noticeable when storylines aren't as tightly woven together. So long as the action continues to be compelling, we don't need nonstop shocks and explosions. The mysteries are keeping our interest peaked. And we actually had a clatcher, Hillary, write in to ask the same question. Did this episode feel a little choppy, especially when it cuts over to Julia? And those were kind of my first thoughts. I worried that they were having difficulty placing Julia the past couple of episodes this season in with the rest of the characters. And also that each grouping, because we did have clear groupings of characters this time around, right, felt distinctly separated from the next However, I heard Christina Strain, the writer, in an interview on another podcast, talking about her method, how she wrote this episode, which is very different from how she normally approaches things. And that was to write each grouping one at a time all the way through and then figure out how they connected to each other. It was more about analyzing the emotional arcs of each set and how they mimicked each other rather than an interwoven set of plot lines.
1: I don't necessarily mind that, but I would argue that nowadays, viewers are very accustomed to this woven aspect of TV shows. That's one of the main reasons TV shows are almost doing better than movies. And that's one of the main reasons why Marvel's doing so well, because from movie to movie to movie to movie to this other movie, it all weaves in together in one big storyline. Now, I said this before, I don't work for them, I wish I did. I blame this awesomeness on Netflix mainly, when people were able to binge more this ability to weave this information and have the viewers remember these little details because they're binging so quickly has opened another door. Not saying that it's never been done before, but it's being done more frequently. But when you have some episodes like this, I don't mind it. When you do a whole season, which was our issue, we just finished reviewing this new Doctor Who. Hmm. They did it purposely, and that doesn't make it better, but they wanted to make sure that every episode... Was a standalone, and I don't appreciate it when it's just that.
2: I definitely hear you, and like I said initially, I felt that way too. How does what Margot and Josh are going through in Fillory have anything to do with what Penny and Marina are doing in their timeline jumps? I could be totally off base with this, but after a little thought, I think we got some massive clues in this episode as to where we're going later in the season and beyond. So maybe they don't seem to connect right now. But I think this is going to be an episode we look back on later and we say, man, we underrated that because this was track. This was (laughs) groundwork.
1: Yeah, for sure. And Christina is alluding to it now. She's going to break it down later.
2: Two things. Where I think we're going with Penny, the character, and the fact that I believe we have uncovered the identity of the monster, the true identity. I know a lot of people have been speculating about this. We've been speculating about it. But thanks to two really amazing Clatcher tip-offs, and some research, it finally seems to be lining up. So I am so excited to talk speculation on that and to get into our character review later on. First, let's start off with our new faces and places. We actually had a lot of new stuff this time. We were introduced to Lady Pike, played by Miranda Frigon, the ruler of Codswall. And Codswall is apparently one of the smaller fingerling isles we did not know existed.
1: She means ruler of (laughs) cockswallower.
2: The Fingering and, Islands? And
1: the Fingering Islands, yeah.
2: <laughs> Those were some great interactions.
1: Have we said we love Margot?
2: <laughs> <laughs> we could say it again. We also met Sheila Kozner, played by Cameron Manheim, who you will, I'm sure, have recognized from about a million things. Law and Order, One Life to Live, The Practice, The L Word, Person of Interest. The list is way too long. Speaking of great pairings, I thought that this did excellent things for Alice's journey. I know we've been seeing a lot of her paired up with characters to follow her arc from Santa Claus to Christopher Plover, but this, I think, was the best and delivered in a totally different way. Then we had Stop Hard, played by Daniel Yang, a master of Horomancy, and Sonia, his mother, who pioneered the field.
1: Now, Horomancy was kind of an ignored schooling for the last couple of years, right? I mean, they did not we didn't go into their house and party. It was more about the physical kids and...
2: It's actually a sub-discipline. Okay. So that's why you didn't hear as much about it. We heard a little bit. It's known to be obscure, and it deals with the creation of magical clocks for various effects. So primarily, we learned about this through Jane Chadwin. It functions as a sort of magical programming, and its biggest effect is the manipulation of time. But further study can lead to changing weather, optics, probability, and even field effects. So it extends a lot further than that. But we also got one that we haven't heard anything about before and that's queromancy. Seemingly the ability to sense or intuit magic nearby and it wasn't totally broken down for us but that's what we deduce from watching Sheila.
1: So this is a more magnified skill because most of our magicians we've seen especially last season when there was no magic and specifically in A Life in a Day Quentin and Elliot go to Fillory and they go do you feel that? Magic's here. Then we saw when the pipe was blown up in this episode that the Hedge Witch felt it too. So magicians can feel the magic, but they can't really hone in on where it's at.
2: Yeah, that's what it seems like. They can detect strong surges of it when it comes back. But not that you could actually locate the way we see her doing with finding that right. box yeah. in the ground. It's like a magic GPS.
1: Yeah. I need that skill boat for money. <laughs>
2: We also got a couple of new places either seen or spoken about. Of course, one of the biggest, the additional timeline we went to, and we think it was timeline 36 that wasn't officially confirmed. We will talk about how different it was. We mentioned Codswall, but we also heard about the new division of Loria. There is now a West Loria as a result of a civil war that we didn't get to see. What was happening in Fillory while Elliot and Margot were not high kinging? Well, there were problems, and we decided to side with Idri, and that turned out to be a mistake. They lost. Now a woman named Queen Rue is ruling West Loria. I have a feeling we're going to get to see her soon. We will rue the day. And finally, for New Magic, we talked about our two disciplines. We also heard about the Atros flower, one that is apparently interfering with the talking animal speech due to maybe some kind of allergy. We're not entirely sure.
1: And at this point, I'm not entirely in on this one. I don't think I really like that storyline. And
2: we need beats to correct it. I, I don't... This is where it feels like we had to sidebar fillery a little while the rest catches up. Perhaps my greatest source of disappointment, because I always talk about when I dislike it, it, is the times that it comes at the cost of what seems to be essential to our characters. What they were doing with Margot this time felt like a giant step backward for her. I don't know that I see it as a natural progression of her journey, so I want to talk about that when we get to that section. But finally, we heard about Cinnabar, an element used in spells that has been banned for 20 years because it causes severe neurodegeneration. This is one of the examples where this episode seemed to be playing a lot more with paralleling historical events, political commentary, in a very subtle way. I thought it was actually well done. But in addition to that... When we go to Timeline 36, Penny mentions how it's like the Crucible, which is, of course, the 1953 story about the Salem Witch Trials, including the U.S. government persecuting people for being communists, an allegory for McCarthyism. Not a great time. In this timeline, the library has completely taken over in a fascist sort of government way.
1: And we saw that coming in our timeline. It's like the beginnings of it.
2: I'm nervous that that's the direction, if it goes too far, that we would head in timeline 40.
1: Which is funny because I've read historians saying the best way to not make the same mistakes society has made in the past is to be educated and read what has happened in the past and learn from it. So it's kind of funny that the library, who has books galore, <laughs> would not know that, oh, we're kind of leading towards this whole Hitler type thing. Do a maybe copy we shouldn't. Uh... Of
2: the crucible on yeah. hand by chance. <laughs> well, and lastly, maybe the most obvious parallel, what's happening in Modesto is a straight reference to the Flint, Michigan water crisis, one that has extended to other areas, but most infamously, In Flint, where the drinking water source was changed from Lake Huron to the cheaper Flint River. And due to insufficient water treatment, lead reached from the pipes into the water, exposing over 100,000 residents. As I said, I like what all of this does. It was a little rocky in the beginning, setting up Alice's pieces, but eventually where it moves her character through the journey and perhaps some of the open-ended questions by the end. With that being said, because we're talking about her already, let's move into our plot where the first area we're going to talk about is Alice and Sheila. Alice follows the world book to an address in Modesto and rents a room in a house. As there isn't much to do, she visits a convenience store and meets the unfriendly cashier who she recognizes as a hedge witch. He seems disgruntled with classically trained magicians and says their kind have always managed unlimited magic.
1: Yep, and we've talked about that before. You know, I was thinking about this. Newly engaged, you and I, what if we, and this might be just weird, so maybe not, what if we got some Hedgewitch tattoos? That'd be cool. Together?
2: It would be cool. It's one of those things we might look back on later and regret. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> what if we get it somewhere else on the body?
2: Somewhere small? Like
1: on the ankle, together.
2: That's so visible, though.
1: I have one in if my ankle If you change already. your mind
2: about that, you're screwed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I do want to get one soon, though. Let me ask you a couple of things. Were you surprised at how quickly Alice took this journey? We thought we'd see her hanging around a little bit with the crew before she followed the world book instructions. But she seems ready to just go pay her penance and move on.
1: Honestly, I didn't see that coming. I thought she would be fighting to be amongst them and she would prove herself. I don't know what to make of that as far as the crew is concerned and the emotions but I do know what to make of it as far as the writing has been going this season it seems like this is the season that she's on her own journey here she will be tackling side projects that will inevitably help the crew out and or help us forgive her perhaps but I do have argument towards that Hmm. but also and I'm going to be chastised for this I honestly feel that since season two the end of season two Let's say I don't know specifically that Alice's character has not been very likable at times very interesting and somewhat a thorn in your side. And I think that's on purpose, except for the interesting part. I think it's just I was so mad at her that I was like, I don't even care.
2: You you felt (laughs) you felt towards her the way I felt towards Julia. And we did get a lot of comments writing in about both sides of those. You know, people saying it's completely understandable why the group hasn't forgiven Alice yet. I haven't forgiven Alice yet. And either you feel for her and you really want her to achieve forgiveness or you're frustrated with her and you're like, that's right, Quentin, you tell her she deserves to spend some time thinking about what she's done. What I was bringing up last episode were simply parallels that I see in their two journeys. I think that both of those characters have had to go through times of having increased power and then losing power. Having some sort of transformation on a really base level, having their shade removed or being turned into a niffin, there's very serious identity crisis and struggle in what they've gone through. Unfortunately, that also has ramifications for the crew that ripple out and make us frustrated with their actions at times because, in their search to figure it out, they have inadvertently hurt other people. The issue that I see with this writing wise, and I brought this up a long time ago, is that. Both of these characters essentially had two really long spreading journeys that spanned the course of all three books. They got to that so quickly in the show that I feel like they're having to either in a little bit repeat it or stretch it out a little bit more. And I think maybe that's what you're feeling at times. I know that I've felt that at times. You know, we just mentioned that they're having to kind of pair Alice with a few different characters this season in order to send her on that journey and draw some comparisons, see what we think about her. Santa tells us she's good at base, so we should believe that. We see her next to Christopher Plover, and, well, by comparison, she's not that bad. But I actually think that this time around, this is a good topper to the journey. It's her trying to get down to what's at the base of this, and that's her struggle with magic that she's always, always had. She is inherently a lot more powerful, and sometimes... She doesn't know what to do with that. If you remember the time where she grew the tree in Fillory with Quentin, and she said it was the first time she really let her magic go, unleashed it, and it frightens her. And she has seen time and time again in this universe what a vast amount of magic can do. It can do bad things. It can be scary. That's why she made the mistake last season of saying, I can't let the group do this. I can't let them bring back magic because bad things could happen. This is a personal problem. Mm -hmm. But I think this is more what she needs to do to fix it. Perhaps she needed to be reminded that magic can do good things and can help people.
1: Yes, I agree with you. But my counter argument, and I was going to wait till later, but
2: fuck it. <laughs>
1: she's doing it in her way, which is I know better still. Always, yeah. And she's making things worse. Maybe this wasn't the right time to fix the water and draw attention to you and Sheila. I mean, Sheila is in trouble now, obviously, by the end of the season, right? Episode, sorry.
2: In fairness, though, this was not her idea. This is kind of Sheila pushing her into this and her saying the whole time, This is dangerous. Maybe you don't want to mess with this. I didn't see it as the same thing. Oh, I know best and this is a valid purpose. So I must do this. This was somebody coming to her saying, You have a skill that can help people. You need to utilize that.
1: Okay. All right. I see what you're saying. Maybe I'm being too hard on her. Last week, you were being too hard on her. And this week I am. Well, I
2: vacillate because I think I'm emotionally connected to her and I do want to see her do the right thing. And when she messes up, I'm like, damn it, Alice, come on. But I also think that there could be more going on here with Sheila that I'm nervous about. So let's press on. Sheila explains to Alice the reason she continues to go to church, even though she's not religious, is because her mother who passed away did so. And the congregation were all there for her afterwards. After Alice sees her go outside one night acting strange, she follows her into the woods where she sees Sheila do magic to locate a spot, dig up a box buried with money, and leave it anonymously on the front steps of the parish. Alice realizes she's been doing acts like this to help people. She also recognizes Sheila is a newly discovered and untrained magician, a queromancer, which is a very rare ability. It's then, under Alice's urging, that Sheila rids them of the two librarians who show up at their door, Paul and Laurel, and offer her more magic if she signs up for a library card. Alice explains you can't trust them, and magical power can be dangerous.
1: Have you heard the word of the library lately?
2: Yes, that, and this is the way they are keeping tabs on people. Mm Mm-hmm. Making sure that they don't use more magic than they're supposed to. Tracking them.
1: They should just talk to Apple and be like... Give them all iPhones. We can track them perfectly.
2: (laughs) Facebook. We go through this really nice, slow startup, though, where Sheila understands and thinks Alice was sent here to teach her magic. She doesn't want to in the beginning, but Sheila convinces her to show her a little bit of the beginnings. And when Alice tries to warn her magic is dangerous, she thinks, in fact, it's responsible for everything that's gone wrong in her life. Sheila says that things like that aren't inherently good or bad. It's just how you handle it.
1: I agree with that. It's a tool. And this is what I love about this show. We've talked about this probably every season, so I won't go too deep into this. But one of the main reasons why we love The Magicians is that it's so real. Like magic doesn't make everything better. There's consequences to the power. There's consequences to what you do. And this is just another example.
2: Yes. And when I say that there's some parallels between character journeys, I'm thinking of Julia She can blow up an entire forest with her magic or she can make an entire harvest of crops grow. They can learn to use it for good or for bad. And I don't know that Alice ever felt like she had as much choice and control over it. It was more like something that controlled her. So this is an exercise by teaching somebody else and shifting her perspective. Maybe it's not that I have to completely shut off the magic. I have it or I don't. Maybe I can figure out how to do some good with it. And as we said, upon realizing that her water is filled with lead, Alice shows Sheila a spell to clean it. Sheila then requests she do this for the whole town as it's making people sick. When Alice explains that would take more power... And the library controls the levels of ambient magic flowing through the pipes, Sheila says she can sense them. Even though they're everywhere, there's one that's different because it has a leak. So together they locate it and Alice widens the crack, allowing more magic to flow through. But that's did, her real mistake.
1: Yeah. Didn't she think that they would realize that? I mean, she didn't widen the crack. She blew it
2: up. I guess because they were saying they are everywhere, would they notice? I feel like this is more just an act of carelessness on Alice's part. Okay. She got so wrapped up in that mission, she didn't even think about what that could do. And you can see it on her face afterwards. When she mixes the spell to clear the pipes, she thinks, I can't remember a time when magic wasn't the problem. She seems pleased and at peace for the first time I can ever remember as she stays to watch the local kids running through the now clean water coming out of the fire hydrant. It was such a sad moment because I really wanted to feel joyous for her. And yet there's that foreshadowing. It's immediately followed by bad things. You know, that's not going to last.
1: Even the way they were filming that scene, I was like, this seems ominous. Hmm. Watching kids play in water shouldn't feel ominous, (laughs) but it does. Yeah.
2: And we see, having sensed the rush of increased magic, the hedge witch she met earlier calls his friend to head over to an event he knew she'd want to watch, which turns out to be the local library chapter exploding. I thought this was a great example of when you marginalize groups and push them to the side enough and oppress them, eventually they are going to rebel. Yeah. And that's what they've done here. It's terrifying. I don't know what the consequences of that are going to be.
1: How many innocents were in there? We don't know.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a local chapter of our order of the library. Was it also kind of a regular library? Were there normal people there? And perhaps more unsettling, back at the house, Sheila is met by two men who say she's been busy. What do they mean by this? Is Not this- just
1: two men. We recognize one of them, and he's one of the top dogs.
2: The order So people. it's real. yeah. Is it just that they figured out they opened the pipe and are doing magic? It kind of seemed like they already knew her.
1: Well, they already knew what was going on. That's why the library was there earlier to recruit her. Mm -hmm. Is there a
2: chance Sheila knows more than she's let on to Alice is what I'm asking?
1: Oh, that I don't know. I don't know. I think not, but I'm just guessing here. It's a result of one of their libraries exploding. There's an unmeasurable amount of magic all of a sudden in this town. And what I mean by unmeasurable, meaning they're obviously rationing things everywhere, mm-hmm. right? So all of a sudden there's this town, if you're looking at a screen that has the measurements, it's red. Mm. And they're like, why is this town getting so much magic? Mm-hmm.
2: How do they track it to her?
1: That's where the water is cleaned from her drain. That's where the magic started. I don't know.
2: Why would they think to look at the water? You know, like the pipe wasn't at her house. The reason I ask this, it didn't just seem to be that they were coming in to lay down the hammer. It actually looked like they knew Sheila. Mm. And then I thought, was it weird that she meets the library for the first time and she so flippantly agrees with Alice? No, I don't want to deal with that. I understand people in power, yada, yada. You teach me magic. Was this kind of a setup from the beginning? I don't think so. I I don't think Sheila's bad, but I'm wondering if she's trying to get back at the library in her own way as well.
1: Oh, okay. So she already... Okay, maybe. So when you say it that way, maybe. Because I'm in the school of thought that this book, this world book, is a good guy only because I want it to be. There's no rhyme or reason other than that. Um, I want this book to be able to guide our heroes or our hero in particular, Alice. And maybe Sheila is already battling or fighting these, like you said, entities, and the book said she needs some help.
2: She can help her there. Hmm. It definitely sent her to Modesto for a reason, right? And was it just to train a newly discovered magician that doesn't feel likely Uh, a suspicious person could say that Alice was suspect of the book in the beginning. She didn't want to follow it. She wanted to go by her book Mm. of everything. And it was Plover who insisted, maybe you can track something for yourself. So I don't know. There just seems to be a lot more under the surface. And I think we're only just starting to see where the rest of Alice's journey takes her.
1: And we had a Clatcher who wrote to us saying that they live in Modesto or they're close to Modesto. I won't say who it is because I don't want to say where they live. Um, and they were right to us, but they didn't. So thanks, buddy. <laughs> now I'm saying that it's a Clatcher that we've known for a while. I'm not. It's not random.
2: We also had another Clatcher, Linda, write in to talk about Alice's forgiveness arc and to say that she thinks at the crux of this is Alice needs to forgive herself before she can find forgiveness from others. That's what her interactions with Santa and Plover were about, starting to reconcile her relationship with magic. I like that. And I I think that's what I was getting to as well. I agree with that.
1: Yeah, maybe she needs to reconcile that issue, which was the main issue to begin with, before she can reconcile her issues with the crew.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think they all have had that same issue since the beginning of the story, right? They each have their own things going on. And sometimes it becomes all-consuming at the expense of the rest of the group. We've seen that with almost every one of our characters. So this is her separate journey to do so I wonder if this is going to throw a huge wrench in things. I tried to help, and it still didn't work out well. Well, let's shift gears and head over to Fillory. We see since the return of magic, the atros flower has been found blooming all over the kingdom. The pollen is what's stopping the talking animals from speaking. They found a remedy, the juice from a beet that grows on Codswall Island. But there's one problem. Lady Pike, the ruler, is known to be difficult, so Tick tells us.
1: Why all of a sudden is this, is this pollen a problem? If these flowers have always been there.
2: It sounds like they haven't. Since the return, since magic came back, they've started blooming all over Fillory. Why is that happening? I have no idea.
1: Is it because of the remnants of our fairies? Remember
2: all those mushrooms yeah. she was sowing and everything? I
1: wonder if that changed the soil or yeah, something.
2: Yeah, could be. Well, Margot meets with Lady Pike to discuss a negotiation. And when the lady realizes Margot doesn't know or seemingly care about her island, she comments that she will sell to West Loria instead. Fenn tells Margot that while she was gone, Loria had this civil war. I also thought it was interesting she noted that West Loria doesn't have any talking animals there. I don't think that was a throwaway comment. I think we're going to see West Loria soon. And when Margot plans an open attack... To take the beats, Fen and Tick worry about this approach, but it's Josh who pulls her aside to talk and offers to help avoid all-out war. She agrees to a dinner with Lady Pike, where Josh will offer instructions through an earpiece. He believes you can learn a lot about people based on what they eat, and he will be able to read her. Of course, Josh, Gordon Ramsay, our resident chef who loves his tomatoes, and he actually is really amazing here. He's employing a kind of psychology...
1: He really in, is. A, in a
2: culinary way to, to get a read on her. What
1: she's eating, the way she's eating it. It's pretty cool.
2: And he's right. He quickly determines she is bold, proud of her accomplishments. Being driven has led her to be lonely and misunderstood. But most importantly, she's obsessed with her alpacas. <laughs> when Margot smartly reminds that her administration was the first to give talking animals their rightful voice and then takes an interest in her alpacas, the lady thinks she misjudged her but she still insists she can't go back on her promise to West Loria. Josh encourages Margot to see the meeting through to dessert, but having had enough, Margot goes back and demands the surrender of the beets. Otherwise, she will skin and eat her alpacas.
1: Margo, what are you doing?
2: Beating the real me. Let me tell you how this is going to play out, lady. You're going to give me those beets, and I'm not going to skin and eat any of your tasty alpaca children, Capiche? That's what I thought. I want you to tell me first, what do you think about this move?
1: My initial reaction is what you're feeling right now, I believe, is you're mad at Margot. This isn't, you're giving me the face that that's not what you believe, but okay.
2: <laughs> no, I'm not mad at her for this.
1: Okay. It just seems uncharacteristic. She was being diplomatic and she was getting what she needs for her kingdom, but she reacted emotionally and ruined What could have been like a Netflix House of Cards kind of dealing by giving the power hand and saying, this is what we're going to do or else I'll do this. Now, I'm not mad at her for this. I actually was kind of annoyed when she was being all cordial. Besides the awesome Josh moments, I was like, "Ah, this is not Margo. I don't like this. And she says, I'm being myself. I love that part. And says, you're going to give it to us or else I'm going to eat all your alpacas. I love that. But deeper, what we're seeing is what we heard Margot say to Fen last episode. I can't cry because if I start crying, I won't be able to stop and I won't be able to help my kingdom. We often do this when we have lost loved ones or something happens in our life that changes us forever. We lose a job that was supposed to be our future. On and on and on. We try to say, I'm going to be strong. I won't let this affect me. I'm going to move forward and push and power through this. But inevitably, if you don't talk it out, Get those feelings out, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I believe that's the cracks in her human emotions coming through. And I don't hate her for that.
2: Um, yeah, I think you misread my comments. I couldn't agree more. I think that acting like she did with Lady Pike was actually quintessential, Margot, and what needed to be done in the moment. She was temporarily being influenced by everyone else Tick, Fen, Josh, saying, We'll go about this nicely be diplomatic. She could see that wasn't working and Lady Pike was just going to keep playing with her. Yeah, I like you. I might have misjudged you, but I think I'm still going to sell the West Loria. She needed to play the strong hand here. She needed to be the high king because the situation needs to be figured out right now. And it's beats, people. All right. If we need to go in and take the effing beats, that's what we're going to do. I agree with you that where I think she acted uncharacteristically was her follow up with Josh later Mm. this is where i was upset with her
1: okay yeah that's
2: right and i think that is all due to the emotional residue of what's going on with elliot if you recall in the beginning when they were trying to convince her to act differently they said elliot wouldn't rule this way elliot wouldn't do that she's already so torn up about him to now have that kind of pressure of your way of ruling was fine when you had the balance of elliot Now you have no yang to your yin and you can't just fly off the handle anymore. And she's got Josh kind of planting these seeds, literally talking into her ear, do it differently. And I think she just snapped. And unfortunately, at the wrong person who really was just trying to help her and her defense walls went all the way back up. She had to put him down in order to feel strong and okay again. And I think she immediately realized that was a mistake, but the damage has kind of been done. I mean, what did she say that he's a sweater wearing dude that just wants to mean something to anyone? I mean, it was really, really cruel. Yeah. And I think this could show a pattern that she's going to start isolating herself and trying to harden herself from feeling all of that vulnerability and emotion. And it's going to land her in a tricky spot so i see why they did it it just felt a little bit abrupt the way it shifted and uh, almost like oh this is why we brought josh here for her to shit on him and discover what's going on with herself but as i said i am very interested in where that's going to take us in the future i do have some ideas of what's coming up for Margot, and i think it's going to be good now on to our third pairing and that's quentin and julia who are trying to develop their next moves Quentin thinks if they help the monster to collect all of his organs, they may be able to get him out of Elliot. Julia is concerned that they are creating an unkillable Titan body. Boom. Yeah, boom. But I think they knew the track we were on and they were trying to throw us with that. Yeah. More on that later. But she reluctantly agrees to continue. The problem is, they didn't have time to decipher all of the hieroglyphs on the page that they gave to the monster. And neither of those two stone organs came from Egyptian culture. She does remember, there were a lot of yellow fruit symbols on the page. And when they search online, they locate an article about a recently discovered Egyptian pharaoh's tomb. They are searching the archaeological site when the monster shows up drunk. He claims to have lost the book page and doesn't know anything about Egyptian gods, but thinks they should just ask one of the mummies and awakens one.
1: <laughs> Before you press on, I actually really enjoyed this segment because he's in the body of Elliot. And we know that Elliot, in the past, we've had these issues, um, likes to consume, mm-hmm. and his body fiends it at times. So to see that the monster is feeling what the body wants, and he's bored, and he's got all these emotions that we're learning.
2: I like tequila. Julia,
1: my body likes tequila. (laughs) And we see this spiral he's going on. It's so believable and it feels so right for what should be happening to the God right now. It's so much better than him just zapping in going, I'm bored, guys. You figuring it out? No? Okay, I'll be back. You know.
2: And also goes so quickly from funny to dark and serious in that the more bored he gets, the more he drinks and then he starts looking for pills. He's going through such intense... Uh, addiction withdrawal whatever that he's sweating he's quite literally killing the elliot body yeah and it's clear the weakness is still there and the monster is exploiting that now for his own benefit which is a terrifying prospect absolutely like it got real quick
1: she just got real
2: <laughs> quentin and julia also learned the yellow fruit is a mandrake root and they're looking for hecca the god of magic and medicine because he has one of the stones He's already dead, buried in the temple of Esna, but the temple was looted shortly after. So now they have to figure out, where did it go?
1: So this is a god we never met and is already dead. Now, as far as the mummy is concerned, we realized that the Elliot monster woke up a mummy right before commercials. So we were psyched. We were like, oh, this is so cool. Now, when the mummy woke up at first, I was so disappointed. I was like, oh, really? Uh, This is it? This is what we're getting? Just like a grunting... I was hoping, and this is probably my fault, I was hoping... For a Rami Malik type mummy. He unwraps it and starts talking to them and is like...
2: Oh, I didn't even think about that's that. That's what I was going for. I wanted more of a scary, slightly decaying... Either way, I wanted it to look better. The problem was it looked cheap and shitty. The actor did a phenomenal job.
1: Yes. And that's what I was going to say. By the time that scene was over and they sat on him while he looked around, I was like... All right. It paid off. It was good. It was funny.
2: Whoever this actor was deserves (laughs) some credit because he literally saved the day. This could have gone off the deep end quick.
1: Oh, I read it. It is Rami.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He played it pitch perfect. So, yes, we were able to forget. And I do want to mention we will come back to Hekka later. Here, though, the monster comes back, getting fed up and bored and continuing to ruin Elliot's body, threatening now to take the whole bottle of pills. Q's attempts to stop him anger the monster who nearly strangles him in a show of power. But after Q threatens to stop helping with the search, he finally agrees to take better care of the meat suit.
1: Well, here we have Q once again sacrificing himself for his friends. Kill me. I don't care. I'm not going to press on and help you if you continue to kill my friend.
2: And I believed he was ready to do it.
1: Oh, I believe that too. What's even more interesting is the fact that he's portraying this emotion while still pretending to think that Elliot is dead because you can't tell the monster. I know Elliot is there. He -hmm. came up, which opens another question. Do you believe that the Elliot monster felt the real Elliot come back up? Or do you think it's like uh, when you get knocked out from a punch and you wake up, you don't know what just happened?
2: I think he knew something happened, but he quickly dismissed it and isn't paying it any mind. I think we would see more of that. Yeah, I love, again, these opportunities that it gets to highlight the character of Quentin, Jason Ralph's acting, paired with Hale Appleman's acting, just off the charts. On the negative side, it only highlights the fact that Julia is kind of just standing there without anything to do.
1: This season has been, well, besides one or two episodes, obviously last season was Julia's season. So I guess maybe, you know, she's got to take a step back for a little bit.
2: Yeah. And I thought maybe pairing her up with Quentin would do some interesting things and explore all of the history they had and the friendship and the difficulty emotionally there. Maybe we could get into a little bit of that while we're pressing pause on her. Am I still a god? Got him. What's my identity? But they're not really digging into that because it's all about Quentin's relationship and fear for Elliot. I don't mind that. I don't at all, but it makes her feel like a hanger on like what, you know?
1: Well, this episode specifically, yeah, there has definitely been good episodes with her in regards. I mean, come on, last episode and the one before that was really great with her and Shoshana.
2: Yeah, I think they stopped that a little too soon. That's what I mean by kind of cutting these journeys short. And they do that a lot with Julia then it's like, well, what now?
1: Yeah. Make this a 22-episode season. <laughs> That's what I want. Except for I Run don't know if we'd be able to cover need. it. We wouldn't be able to cover it if there's 22 weeks.
2: I am super excited, though, to get into our speculation. I don't mind the way they're pacing this thing out with the monster, us trying to figure out the mystery. I actually love it. I'm continually worried for Elliot.
1: Did you see Elliot's shirt?
2: Yes!
1: It's a bear and it says, Put your head in my mouth. I love that. These
2: t shirts are excellent this season.
1: And I know this isn't supposed to be Mayakovsky, but it just made me think it was is Mayakovsky. Is it Humble Drum? <laughs> or Humble Drum, yeah.
2: Where the hell is Mayakovsky? I don't
1: know. Where the hell is Katie?
2: Well, but fine. That's two episodes. When's the last time we saw Mayakovsky? Mm-hmm. For real.
1: Oh, he's hibernating. <laughs>
2: With, his, with all of the rest of his magical batteries in a cave somewhere. Yes.
1: <laughs> but he swallowed it. It's in his for the winter. Oh my
2: God. Well, and finally, to the plot line, we've been wanting to talk about Penny and Marina. Penny wakes in a cell with symbols on the floor, presumably to prevent him from traveling and sees Marina is in the next cell. She tells him they were sold and kidnapped by a man named Stupard, a horomancer who's kind of a legend. He tells them he doesn't want to hurt them, just send them back to their timeline where they belong. Their presence has created a frequency dissonance. Their quarks, which are subtle, most people wouldn't notice, but he does, are messing up their every spell.
1: I know she's not a good person. She's actually a bad person, but I really love Marina.
2: Well, we talk about that a lot. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if she's a bad person. She's very self-serving, and luckily their aims happen to be kind of in line right now. But the play between the two of them is just magnificent. So we know a quark is a subatomic elementary particle. It's a fundamental part of matter, but it creates a fractional electronic charge. Whatever amount of that they are giving off by being in the wrong timeline is really messing things up.
1: So is it messing things up for all of magic or for a horomancer who is dealing with time, which is very sensitive? You know, I mean, watch. Watch. What's controlling the watch inside, the reason why a lot of them are so expensive is because they're very, well, tiny, mechanical, but also they're very exact. And you can mess that up if you bang it or what have you.
2: I had wondered that too, because I speculated at the beginning of this season, I thought them being here was really going to mess with things. Here, they make it seem like it's just him and his spells, but later on, Penny Forty's going to tell them it's a lot bigger than all that. And you're affecting more than just some sick old lady
1: it sounded to him in a good way and that's why they need to stay there the pennies
2: no i think both okay. I, I think they're doing things that are messing it up on a bigger scale but it's also so important that they stay there okay that they have to so Stepard activates a magic box and they are transported as soon as they arrive though it stops working because there's no magic in timeline 23 oops yep Penny's ready to leave Marina there, but she insists that he needs her help to work the box. Of course, she's wrong. She messes it up. She does transport them, but to Timeline 36.
1: Now, these scenes were very, or a mixture of funny and very informative. But I need to pause for a second because I guess I was really wrong. I thought this was all Katie's doing, and it seems not at all.
2: Yeah, we don't really know how she's figuring into any of this yet. We assumed we were going to get to the McAllister storyline through her, and I think that we still will. But as we mentioned, we see it's even more serious here. There is a sign up that says no magic. Under federal law, citizens must report any and all use of magic to authorities. It's not even being doled out sparingly in this timeline. Then we get a walk and talk. While the two figure out what they're going to do, Marina shares with Penny that she has a girlfriend. They were a thing in Timeline 23, and she fucked it up. So she's found her in Timeline 40. She's convinced she's better this time, so she can make it work. Oh, boy. This is so <laughs> Marina.
1: Yeah. Look, if you weren't going to work in one timeline, you're not going to work in the next.
2: Well, and I doubt she's even explained that True. to this woman. Listen. Oh, no. You know, we had a relationship before.
1: <laughs> well, this harkens back to our movie review. On Patreon that we just went over, which is about time. Mm. And the whole, if you know more than the other person, are you taking advantage of them? In this regards, I say yes.
2: Well, yeah, because it seems like Marino was probably the one responsible mm-hmm. for whatever happened to the relationship the first time. But it also tells us something That we didn't know about her and maybe humanizes her more that, yes, this is about her. It's always still kind of selfishly about Marina, but she genuinely cares about somebody else. Something else is that important to her, which I think is an interesting note to strike. I'd like to see where they go with that. We were complaining that at times it's like we're bringing Marina back in, but we're not really getting a lot. And this could make her more of a character. Her plan is that they could find Stoppard in this timeline and ask them with help to fix the machine. With no better idea, Penny goes along with this, and arriving at Stopard's place, he marvels over the magical box, saying he hasn't seen anything like it since before the exclusion laws. In fact, he used to have one just like it. <laughs> oh dear. But just then, his mother passes out, and while distracted, Marina convinces Penny to take the box and they travel out.
1: So in this timeline, it looks like they're affecting it even more. Or quicker, Or something because right away she's having trouble.
2: Yeah, we had discussed that. I wondered if it was because there is no other magic emanating in this universe. So the effects are going to be a lot more obvious.
1: Or was it the fact that it's inevitable and that's what our penny was saying it's inevitable regardless
2: it is inevitable but i am also thinking they were in such close proximity to her that energy they're giving off is right there okay the two go to a boarded up break bills they're looking for reference but there aren't many books luckily though marina took the invention blueprints from sonia
0: Wasn't that in Stoppard's workshop?
2: Yeah, that screen opens a window
1: in time. You can FaceTime with the past as far back as 50 years. It's genuinely genius,
0: like, wow. A lot of these spells use Cinnabar. Hasn't hasn't that stuff been banned for years?
1: Yeah, it causes severe neurodegeneration, which is probably
2: what's happening with Sonya. She's been hitting the Cinnabar pretty hard for decades, I imagine. It's like clockwork Alzheimer's. Your brain gets unstuck in time. You don't know where or when you are, and then you die. Ooh. The strange watches she was wearing were probably some type of treatment, but they messed that up.
1: She was so flippant with it.
2: Yeah, not a lot of empathy, and it's really making Penny frustrated. It's then he has this realization, this is what happened in the other timelines. Stephard has just been trying to to save his his mother.
1: I almost feel bad for him.
0: Don't feel bad for us. Even if we get back to timeline 40, Stoppard's going to do anything he can to kick us out.
1: Unless we kill him. For
0: trying to save his mom?
1: Moms die every day. Circle of life.
0: Wow. No. We help him
1: save her. (laughs) This scene right here and the one we're going to get with the penny on penny, we're finally getting Arjun speaking more than one or two sentences, and I've been missing that able to see his cadence you know we've had clatchers who have said they like this penny better and i couldn't agree because we haven't really gotten much from this penny one or two liners every other scene maybe this time we actually got to see arjun give this penny a different cadence how does he speak he gives his patented No. no i love that no
2: he also shows and i think the reason why people could be saying this he's very empathetic completely insistent that they help this woman. We've seen how he was with Julia a lot more emotionally exposed perhaps than Penny Forty. I think that could also be his weakness though because we talked a lot we did see our Penny Forty doing a lot to help the group in service of others. Ultimately there was a lot he was willing to put on the line and a lot he was willing to do While also being able to see the bigger picture, where this penny seems to get really focused in. And Forty has to give him a little bit of a pep talk later on. There's more going on than just that. And it might be hard to say that means this person is going to get hurt. But sometimes those are the things you need to do. The two go back to the house and activate the invention. Now they can speak with past Sonia and warn her about the cinnabar. They think this is the answer. But she already knows. Daniel talked to her about it a few months ago told her to stop, but also told her she was about to have a breakthrough that creates a whole new discipline. So instead, she developed a device to tether her mind and keep her safe, the watches. Marina and Penny get in a tussle over what to do. He grabs the box and is transported to a white room. There, another Penny walks in, our Penny 40. To me, it was completely obvious right away that this was him. They left it hanging out there for a second, but... no. We knew it was him. Yeah. Are you kidding me?
1: We knew from the little bit of a preview that we saw, mm-hmm. which is two pennies.
2: And 23 is talking about how it never felt right taking his place, but our penny insists he needs to go back. It's where he belongs.
0: Real talk. You got to go back. To 23. I know. I'm working on it. Uh, no. My timeline. It's where you belong. Okay. Do you want to cut the vague, omniscient librarian shit and just tell me why? It's complicated, but crucial. You do know me existing there is making some very important horomancer lady very sick. It's doing a lot more than that. Look, I know you lost everyone you love in Timeline 23. Really? But they're still alive in Timeline 40. And if I were you, which I am, I'd do whatever to not lose them again. You may be me, but you don't know me, okay? Those shits are not my people. Fair. But I know a little about your future. Perks of the gig. So it's being an abduous dick about it, apparently. Tanya can't be saved. Even if you go back to 23, she's dead within a month.
2: He tries to protest one last time, getting really to the heart of it, saying Katie and, in fact, the whole group want him. But penny says, not my
0: timeline anymore.
2: And he leaves us with this.
0: You remember that when the moment comes, I said do it. Do what he says.
2: Do what who says. I don't know. That was really... Who is he? Intense.
1: The monster? Elliot monster? Oh. Or Quentin?
2: Maybe. The monster. Hmm. You'd think if that was the case, he'd be a bit more specific.
1: You would... Know. Well,
2: How he? do I know when the time is? Who's he? What? Well, these are not great instructions, timey-wimey. Penny.
1: <laughs> so that's something to remember, Clashers. When the moment comes, do what he says.
2: He has obviously read these books. He yes. knows what's going to happen. He knows that, yes, this Timeline 40 could be different. 23 is needed not just to help his friends in the group, although that's a factor, but because the group is going to do something that needs to happen. It's mm. critical. And his presence there is a part of that. I think it seems by the end of the episode, Penny 23 finally gets that. He goes back to Marina and to Timeline 40, and he tries to talk to Stopard. He says he's sorry about his mom, but he's not going anywhere. He can't. There are bigger things at play here.
1: Looks like he listened to Penny 40. Mm-hmm. But let's pause for a second. Let's take a step back. We just saw our penny and you're breezing over it. I want to give my two cents. Get it? Mm-mm. Two pennies. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got our penny back, right? There's the cool penny that I was talking about last episode. Waxing poetic. Feels like he's more in control. That's because he has the information. When you have the information, you have the power. Information is power, right? But let's dig deeper here. He seems pretty comfortable where he's at now. The last time we saw him and we broke this down, he had a bite of the cupcake. And we in the past have spoken about the theory of in the underworld, when you have something to eat there, you're cemented there. Mm -hmm. And we were reflecting on Persephone when she ate something.
2: Pomegranate seeds. That's right. Jason.
1: He seems pretty comfortable here. I was wondering if he'd come in and he'd be like kind of like whispering every so often like, all right, listen, man, I'm trying to figure out a way out here, out of here. But, uh, you know, we didn't get that. We got this really comfortable guy. He's wearing a suit that actually fits this time. Last episode, last season, I liked him in a suit, but didn't really fit. It wasn't fitted.
2: Yeah, he seems more confident. I mean, it's really hard to tell because... The majority of the time, he's just talking about what pertains to them because he knows he has to say that. There's more, a lot more that I do want to say about Penny, but I have to save that for spoiler section because anything else would be speculation coming from the preview, not from this scene. Right. In this scene, I kept thinking, how odd to see yourself because yes, it's from a different timeline, but essentially it's still you.
1: I still look at myself, I touch myself in the face and be like... Yeah, you do have chubby cheeks. It, What's going on? <laughs>
2: You're with Julia in this timeline? <laughs> yeah. What? Um, his primary, one of his primary focuses is still Katie. You know, tell her I love her. But something about him has come to terms with, he can't leave not just because it's the underworld and he can't get out, but that's not the way it's supposed to go. Right. This 23 is meant to now be there and do whatever needs to be done. And perhaps 23 listens because it is him. Telling him. Who else are you going to listen to if not yourself?
1: Of course, I would listen to myself. But I, I couldn't help but think the last time we saw Penny speak to someone this way, he was being spoken to that way from Hades. Remember when he came down? Mm-hmm. So, not to go too deep in this wormhole, but did Penny 40 already read about this interaction, was pre- well prepared, knowing what he was going to say, and walked into that room, didn't feel shocked looking at his own reflection, and just went with it because he already read about it?
2: I'm sure. I'm sure that's a big part and that we're going to see a lot more of that.
1: But let's not forget that Alice changed the book. Will that affect something? Is the book that Penny Forty read the wrong ending? Well,
2: which one is he even reading? Yeah, that's that's one of the questions there, right?
1: All right, I, I shall move on now. I apologize.
2: Well, this is really the ending uh, with 23 talking to Stoppard because he finishes it by holding out this dandelion. And telling him, unfortunately, he's already spread 10 of them around. The seeds have taken root and there's nothing Stop Hard can do to clean it up.
1: But it gives me some confidence because it felt like now Penny 23 actually took what he learned from Penny 40 and is going to push forward with that confidently.
2: It's well, I think reluctantly right now, you can still tell he feels terrible about this. But yeah, he's gotten somehow that it's that important He has to continue along with it. When he's faced with the next roadblock, how sure will his resolve stay? I don't know. Well, Jason, we still have so much more to talk about. A lot of speculation, some fun information and comments we haven't gotten to, but that does wrap up our plot. So let's go next to our rating. Each episode, we rate on a scale of one to 10 rations. Just like magic rations, less is worse, better is more. What do you give episode six a timeline in place?
1: So as you, I too had the difficulty the first time watching it, where it felt a little bit fractured in many cases. And now that we had time to watch it twice, reflect on it, figure out what's going on and figure out, holy shit, there's a lot more that's being surfaced here. I actually think it's a really good episode. Hmm. And come on, we got our penny back. We've been waiting for that, right?
2: It wasn't enough No, it never is enough.
1: But they always say, leave them wanting more.
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So for that, I'm going to go with 8.6 rations.
2: The same as your episode 3 rating.
1: That's right. I'm not going to completely blow up that pipe and let all the magic through, but I'm going to give a little more rations tonight.
2: No, that's interesting because I'm also going with my episode 3 rating and giving it an 8.5.
1: Talk about yin and yang. Sometimes I go a little bit lower than you, and sometimes I go a little bit higher
2: than you. (laughs) Well, I still do feel a bit of that choppiness and struggle to get certain plot lines going, such as the beginning of the Alice stuff, the beginning of the Quentin Julia stuff, how does it all fit in? But I do also love the tracks that they're laying down. I enjoyed the pairings. I thought they were really good, which characters they chose to put together and how that played off of it. And it opens up a lot of doors for us that as podcasters, you know we are excited about.
1: So those are our ratings. And now it's time to move on to our most valuable magician, if you haven't done so yet, now is the time to do it. Follow us on Twitter, at podcast and vote with us after every episode. This time we gave you the pairings just like we broke down this episode. Penny and Marina, Alice and Sheila, Margo and Josh, Quentin and Julia. Fourth place, just getting fourth placed, almost had third, with 11% Margo and Josh. Well, it makes sense because we were saying it doesn't feel like a fillery type season as of yet. We have Margot back where she belongs. And we got Josh. You love Josh. And we got Josh being funny. And something that we know when it comes to fillery, a lot of it has to do with politics. Well, if you're the king, politics is your life there. I'm a little worried with the way they're starting to try to b- make these problems. You know, they had the problem with Bacchus there. Now there's this new problem with this new flower. I don't like. Pollen of a flower taking away an animal. That's what I
2: mean. It's starting to sometimes feel like, let's check in with the latest development at Fillory. Mm. It's pollen. It's mushrooms. What is it today? I know that it's all serving as background music to continue to evolve the journey of Margot. But certainly within this episode and the relationship between Margot and Josh, yeah, it's going to rank last on the power list. Coming in a close third with 12% were Quentin and Julia. And again, the dynamics between the two of them, not very strong.
1: We had a strong moment with Quentin, but it wasn't pivotal to this episode.
2: And it didn't seem like they won in the end. They didn't learn a whole lot. They didn't even find out about Heka at the end of the day. So probably not going to be the MVM for the episode.
1: And coming in at third with 35% is Penny and Marina. And we argued about this a little bit. I was like, I want Penny and Penny. Except for we didn't want to spoil anything for
2: people. And it's a, it's the very... majority of this journey was Penny and Marina. Yes,
1: but we love our Penny.
2: Yeah, well, you just can't have Penny all the time, <laughs> Jason. And coming in first, and it was relatively close, 42%, Alice and Sheila. They really were quite a dynamic duo. Considering we did not know Sheila from A Hole in the Wall before this episode, you felt very quickly attached to her. I think that Cameron Manheim did a phenomenal job of creating that instantaneous... We know her. She fits into this world and complimented Alice's exploration, as we said, very well. Plus, there's a heck of a lot going on there. And I think we're about to get to some answers about the library.
1: So let's move on to what our Clatchers had to say.
2: Brian T says, went with Penny and Marina. More for Penny. Awesome to see 23 and 40 together, though that felt like a lot of closure for 40. Yeah. Looks like Alice did good, though it may not seem that way to Sheila for long. Honorable mention to Quentin, I'm thinking I would have backed down during that confrontation. And quite probably, the Elliot Monster would have found that boring.
1: Good point. Absolutely. And Brian T., that reminds me, because he's the only one that's called in this season, and that's probably our fault. We haven't reminded the Clatchers that we have a voicemail
2: system. Yes, don't be afraid to call in. It would be great to hear your voices on air. It's easy. You can call CKC.6606. That's 252 368 6606 and leave us a message about your MVM, your thoughts on the episode. We'll play it next time and talk about it the same way we do with the responses. Lauren says, I don't feel like anyone strongly pushed the story forward this episode. So many new questions and problems. Quentin and Julia literally left loose ends. Yeah. <sighs> oh, that's
1: funny. <laughs> Wait,
2: so please stay tuned in for the spoiler section this time. I. Think that you're going to enjoy what we have to say about all of that?
1: I love the loose ends joke. <laughs> it's a Jason joke.
2: Dijon said, my vote is Alice and Sheila, though my spirit says the library is going to clap back hard. Alice not only found some joy in magic again, she needed it, but she helped someone. Even though she didn't agree at first, she gave them clean water back to the town. Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying. I was glad to see that.
1: I agree. And you know what? I'm really loving the fact that the big bad this season is the library Mm -hmm. and not a new monster. Well, we have a new monster, but he's not really...
2: We think he's not going to ultimately be the the big big bad. bad. Yeah, Yeah.
1: there's more to that. And I'm really interested in that.
2: That's a cool flip. Sherry says, High King Margot is a very strong character, but avoiding her feelings about losing Elliot may result in greater anger and pushing everyone away. Oh, that's what we were saying, right? Exactly. This would make the transition to a quest very understandable. That's what I meant too. Also, it was hard to watch her cut down Josh at the end of the show.
1: Yeah. Agreed. I'm going to heart that right now. And I also want to thank her for tweeting. We see what you're doing and we love it. She tweets about us after an episode and lets the world know. At CKC Podcast, you should listen to the podcast Mm -hmm. if you love the show. Thank you so much. We love when our clatchers spread the word. Spread it like a dandelion so that no (laughs) one can clean it up. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Shauna says, I can't even bring myself to vote this week. It's too hard to choose. I'm giving my vote to the mummy, hmm. who after centuries of being dead and having his brain scrambled, still managed to be quite helpful. I can't even remember half of what I did yesterday. Oh, that's so that's funny. That's phenomenal.
1: Yeah. They must have like, here's a marker just right on that thing. And he just
2: goes. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <Huh?" laughs> This is also kind of what we were saying. Melly says if Elliot doesn't come back soon, we might have an Alice season. So far, she only had one emotion I hate myself and keep hurting others. But with Sheila showing her another perspective, it seems her thinking and actions will be more positive. Also, as much as we've been saying poor Penny in the past, I feel we might be saying a lot more of poor Josh this season. Oh, I agree. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so true. I feel like every time Melly writes in, all I say is, I agree, I agree. I agree. <laughs>
2: We also got some amazing write-ins with some great information. Diana says, I don't know if you caught the reference about Marina. They knew what they were doing and they still licked the paintbrush. Referring to Stopard's mom. I think this is a reference to the radium girls. In watch factories, young women used paint with radium in it to make the numbers on the face of a watch glow in the dark. They would put the brush between their lips to sharpen the point. Then the woman started to get horrible mouth and jaw cancer because they didn't know the radium in the paint was radioactive.
1: Oh, so disappointing. And watch
2: factories. What a crazy parallel that they were drawing that I wasn't aware of.
1: You know what, Diana? That was so well said. There was actually an article by Signal Horizon that talked about the same thing.
2: Oh, really? Yeah, pretty amazing. Oh, I love learning new things from these shows.
1: Uh, I can't wait to find out these cell phones that we've been listening oh, to. yeah, you know?
2: don't take me in that direction.
1: <laughs> and with 5G coming out with the radio waves being the crest and trough are a lot closer to each other and a lot bigger. What's that? What about what our podcasting equipment? Uh, well, no, that's not outputting. That's inputting. So it's less.
2: Lori also pointed out something that I hadn't noticed on a conscious level, but I definitely see it after reading this. She says, did you see how good the actors have gotten now with their hand gestures? I particularly noticed it when Alice did magic at the poison room. They were always good at it, but they become much smoother in holding their hand straight while various fingers do different things. Yeah. The tutting almost feels
1: natural. Yeah. Something they've
2: been doing forever now.
1: But also tutting was a bigger deal in season one, which would make sense because when you're learning, right? Year one, this was a bigger deal. Now you just do it and you don't think about it. Tying your shoe was such a big fucking ordeal every day when you're learning it. Now you just do it, you don't think about it.
2: Well, and last season we didn't have magic. This time it's been limited, so there haven't been a lot of opportunities. It was really on display because Alice was actually showing Sheila a spell. True. So, yeah, that was amazing to see. She also has a theory. In the scene in the park where the monster was discussing now having two body parts... And building a body. I suddenly remembered how Alice offered to build Penny Forty a new body. Oh. I wonder if that's what they'll end up doing and how Alice will rejoin the crew. Man, I don't think that's in line with what's going on with the monster. But as a side thing, could it end up happening? Whew. We're going to talk about how it seems Penny is maybe not as active in his journey to get back to the world. So I don't know if that would come to fruition, but it's a good thought.
1: Well, she might be pivotal in remaking the monster's body, not Penny's.
2: That could be as well. Jennifer actually thinks that her place is going to be in fighting him eventually because of the fact that her discipline is phosphoromancy and she's a light bender. Could she use that plus her combined power to fight this monster? Which would make a lot of sense when you hear our speculating on who we think it is. Without further ado, it is that time. We've waited long enough.
1: Yes, and before we press on, I just want to reiterate, we read all of the Clatchers' Twitter, Facebook, emails. We read them all. We can't read them all online, but we love them and keep them coming. And also, I want to thank some more Clatchers who left reviews for us. NRF111, thank you for your great review, and JKB. It means the world to us that someone's actually listening on the other end.
2: To everyone who wrote in this week, all the information that you gave us, it was truly incredible. I'm sorry if we didn't get a chance to read everything on air, but we always do. And this time around, it's proving to be particularly helpful. So I want to tell you before we traverse into here, we're going to start out with just mild spoilers maybe not even, speculation on who the monster could be going into our mythology as we've been doing. You might feel comfortable enough to do that without going all the way into the end section. So we'll give you another notice if you want to hear this part. We're giving huge shout outs to Melissa and Master Assassin. Our character review this time is twofold. We start out with Heka, the god of magic and medicine we heard about within the episode. I didn't know about him when I started reading. He was an ancient Egyptian god, whose name, if you look at the symbols, is HK3, actually refers to the practice of magic. He was almost the embodiment of magic itself. The Old Kingdom Pyramid texts depict this HK3W as a supernatural energy that the gods possess. The cannibal pharaoh of the time must actually devour the other gods to gain this great magical power. Eventually, Heka was elevated to a deity, not just a force. And was said to be created at the beginning of time, partially as a protector of Osiris. As soon as I thought of that, I thought about Master Assassin who wrote to us, what was it, last week or even the week before? And said, have you considered Osiris? Huge shout outs to you. I had looked at it a little bit then, but wasn't as familiar with Egyptian mythology. So I did some brief skimming and it was interesting. We talked about it a little bit. I couldn't see how it was going to fit together and didn't read enough, apparently. Then this week, Melissa said, there are a lot of Osiris theories out there and some actually hold water, starting with the fact that Osiris sometimes goes by the name The Foremost. One of the titles he was given was Foremost of the Westerners. And this is because it was thought that when you died, you passed on to the afterlife that was in the West. And part of Osiris's rule was that he was the leader over the land of the dead and resurrection. Now, why is this interesting? There was a character named the Foremost in the books. I think we talked about him on a previous spoiler section. And there is now a Foremost listed on IMDb for an upcoming episode 410, in fact. So when I saw this, I thought, oh, this is amazing, Melissa. And I started reading further into the article. I am now 100% fully convinced the monster is Osiris. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was one of the most important gods of ancient Egypt. His worship spanned thousands of years, from shortly before the early dynastic period, we're talking 2600 BCE, to the Ptolemaic dynasty, 30 BCE, the last dynasty to rule Egypt before the coming of Rome. When we talk about our Greek and Roman mythology being very similar, well, that's because a lot of it came from here. It had its roots in Egyptian mythology. Some of it, they just straight up stole characters. He was depicted as a handsome man in royal dress, known to be the god of fertility, but more importantly, the embodiment of the dead and resurrected. He was not only ruler of the dead, but also the power that granted all life from the underworld, from sprouting vegetation to the annual flood of the Nile River, signifying renewal of life in the next world. This is where he got the title for most of the Westerners. If you look at the parallels to Greek mythology, Jason, you'll remember we had the super old deities, Gia and Uranus, Earth and Sky, and they gave birth to the first couple of children. Same thing here. Earth and Sky gods who gave birth to Osiris, Isis, Set, Nephthys, and Horus. Osiris, as the firstborn, assumed rule as Lord of the Earth. Sound familiar? And Isis was his queen and consort. He found the people of Egypt uncivilized and lawless, so he gave them laws, culture, religious instruction, and agriculture. Egypt became a paradise under Osiris' rule, where everyone was equal and there was abundant food. But Set, his brother, was jealous of his brother's success and grew resentful. Their relationship deteriorated. Some stories say that he lusted after his wife, Isis, which only made things worse. And so, according to the myths, Set developed a plan to kill his brother. He had a beautiful coffin made up, exactly to Osiris's height, and threw a grand party where he presented the box and told all of the guests, whichever one of them fit in it most perfectly could have it as a gift. Now, of course, when Osiris lay down and fit perfectly, Set slammed the lid on, fastened it shut, and threw it into the Nile River, where it was carried away. His body traveled out to sea and eventually became his own coffin. It got lodged in a tree growing in Phoenicia, and this tree made its way to a king's palace where he set it up as an ornamental pillar for the court. Somehow, Set finds out about this. He decides what he's done is not enough. He goes and he takes Osiris' body and chops it up into 14 pieces. He flings those pieces all over Egypt.
1: That's very similar to Typhon.
2: Well, I'm going to get there in a second. Some say that his brother Set actually was Typhon, as the two were very closely identified. Uh, Those stories say Typhon divided the body into 26 pieces. Either way, it was chopped up into a bunch of pieces. But this second story says not only did he just fling them all over the place, he distributed them, the pieces, amongst his fellow conspirators in order to implicate them in the murder as well i.e. could distributing mean placing a part into each one of the god co-conspirators in an attempt to hide them, we would think, to cover up his guilt, but also to hide them from Isis, who was seeking to find all of the pieces and put her husband back together. It's said that Isis, along with her sister, eventually found and buried all of the pieces, except for his penis... (laughs) <laughs> Apparently, I don't know what's up with that. But thereby, they were able to give new life to Osiris, who then became ruler and judge of the underworld. It's also said that when she temporarily brought him back to life, or maybe even while he was dead, we don't know, somehow she was able to conceive a son named Horus. Oh,
1: that's weird.
2: Yeah. Well, Horus is thought to be our Greek Hercules who would eventually come back and avenge the death of Osiris by slaying Typhon or Set, whatever you like. He was then able to bring peace and become the new king of Egypt. And Osiris was able to continue his rule over the underworld. (laughs) Come on, guys. Everything fits.
1: The pieces fit.
2: All 14 of them, wherever they're stored, they fit. And Osiris, in fact, was not a bad guy. This monster who's looking to reclaim everything he lost wasn't a bad guy. It was evil set or Typhon, if you like. Thank you to Jennifer, because that theory would work in very well now, too. It was the guy that chopped all these pieces up and threw them all away. That was actually to blame. And he was just trying to put himself back together.
1: Well, with that being said, this story could go so many places. When the monster is finally put back together, would Typhon come back to try to get him? Which wouldn't be a Magician's episode, so they won't go that far, but that would be a cool spinoff.
2: But that's how this also works in with the Greek mythology. It doesn't have to be separate. I was thinking how do these all exist in the same universe, but it all kind of ties in together. I was thinking more like when Osiris comes back, he's the ruler over the underworld. So what happens with him and Hades? Mm. There's so many avenues they could traverse with this. I can't think that this is not what they had in mind now. Uh, It seems to kind of fit in everywhere.
1: So, Sarah Gamble, if you're listening, we'd love to talk to you about this. So please write to us.
2: And again, huge shout outs. Master Assassin, Jennifer and Melissa. You guys have formulated the perfect fan theories.
1: So first of all, that's pretty amazing. Let's hold on to that. (laughs) That'll be... Really fun if that comes to fruition. But before we move on to our spoilers for next episode, that email that I was talking about and joking about earlier in this episode, we actually just got it.
2: Let me guess. It's Brian.
1: Yes, it is. <laughs> I was going to try to keep it secret, but... Just
2: because it came in late? <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's no surprise. Brian says, I figured as your resident Modesto-based clatcher, I could help provide some comparison of the latest episode of Magicians to the real life. Number one, there's nothing to do in Modesto. Kind of true. Doesn't have a lot to do during the evenings like you think of towns in California, restaurants, vibrant nightlife. But we are pretty centrally located. Two hours to San Francisco, two hours to Yosemite, 90 to Sacramento, three hours to Lake Tahoe, and five hours to Disneyland. Number two, there's lead in Modesto's water. False. That's Detroit. We get our water from a snowmelt fed reservoir. Now, that's interesting because Christina Strain, who wrote the episode when she was talking about why she picked Modesto, was because in a lot of her searching, it came up as having a lot of issues with lead in their water.
1: Well, maybe Brian has lead in his brain now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I want to know what the truth is. Number three, there are famous people from Modesto. True. Most notably, George Lucas. Fun fact, his movie American Graffiti is actually about the town and names famous places and streets in Modesto. And Jeremy Renner. Uh Oh, Oh, Brian, I forgot to tell you that this is like my other love. (laughs) Number four, our local newspaper is called the Modesto Daily. False. It's called the Modesto Bee. Fun fact, Walt Disney designed the bee for the paper. And number five, random notes and thoughts, they actually got the general home style interiors correct. Sheila looks like her demographic here in town. The general attitude of the town, this place sucks but I can't leave, is pretty prevalent. But it is on a revitalization uptick and posed to be the gem of the California Central Valley like it was a few decades ago. Also, as a side note, how can pouring magically treated water down the drain help to fix the water coming into the faucet? That's not how water infrastructure works.
1: Brian, you're so mean, dude. He does this with our Patreon stuff, too. she
2: was performing a complex spell. It wasn't just about where she was pouring the water, but good point.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for writing in. Obviously, we're, we're teasing you. We love these. We love all the emails. And that felt like a bonus right there.
2: Yes, and leaves us with only our spoilers for the next episode. If you are afraid of that, we will see you next time for episode seven. For those of you still here, we got the preview for The Side Effect. And oh, what a preview it is. Penny narrates, saying, you think you've seen stories like this before, so you can guess what's going to happen. Which Penny? Our Penny 40. It doesn't end like you think. This book allows you to see other points of view, and the most important characters aren't who you'd expect. Now, we watched the extended cut of this, and man, is it revealing on so many levels. Yes, So this is where we get into real spoilery territory. Let's start by saying it's no secret from this clip. Penny has drank the Kool-Aid.
1: Yes, or eaten the cupcake.
2: Very clear, right? He is order of the library.
1: Yeah, he's no longer pushing a cart with books. He's got a suit. He's got an office.
2: And he's preaching to the new guy. Yeah. I know all you're thinking about is getting out of here, but listen, there's more to this than that. You can't just breeze through these books, read the beginning, and think you know the ending because the characters either are or are not like you.
1: So are we not going to like our penny anymore? (sighs) Or am I going to be like, penny 40 sucks, penny 23 all the way.
2: Well, so I am in love with our penny 40. Let's get on that train of conversation. I know that some people are more for 23. I love 40. I loved book penny. But for a very long time, it's felt like, are we going in the same direction with TV Penny? Is he going to wind up following kind of a similar arc to Book Penny or not? Yes, I could see the essential character underneath things, even though Arjun has portrayed him a little bit differently. We talked about that in our first interview with Arjun, in fact. But more and more, it seemed like maybe The Magicians was going in a slightly different direction on the show. This one clip has sold me wholesale, that we are headed in that place. And this is the first tip off. That's where we're going. I don't want to say too much, even in the spoiler no, please section. Don't. But if you've read the books, you'll know exactly what I mean. And it's about to get a lot more complicated.
1: And I want the Clatchers to know she's not going to tell me. I don't want to know because I want to be able to give opinions that are true mm-hmm. and give theories that are genuine and that you wouldn't be afraid to hear.
2: Yeah, this is no more than I've told you in the past, just that...
1: Penny's different in the books.
2: Well, and that I think this clip shows we're going there. Maybe. I'm psyched. I would love to have that happen. We have also said, in other spoilers, it seems Margot's going to be going on a journey that she did in the books. Yeah. These were some of the most interesting parts that we hadn't gotten to yet on TV.
1: There's one thing you're skipping over. Maybe you're afraid to look in the mirror.
2: Oh, the shattering mirror bridge. Yes. Well, we said it's been a damn long enough time. We got to come back around to it, right?
1: And in fact, Bert wrote in to say, you know, the hearing impaired magician, Harriet and Victoria, if they aren't dead and if they are trapped in that in-between mirror world, could they have magic because it's between worlds? Now, obviously, Bert wants the coming attraction. That's a good question. I'm going to say no. Because there was no magic to begin with. And I feel like that's like, uh, I'm thinking of it as like a black hole. And when magic was turned back on, it's not going to all of a sudden have the magic.
2: How is the flow getting to them? We see the flow of magic comes from somewhere. And how would it get to that in-between place, I guess? So I know that we said we don't get a lot from our synopses about the upcoming episodes. But the next one, the side effect, says Katie goes to the flea market.
1: Oh, Katie's back
2: what Zelda has been up to, our head librarian, and all about Fen. So speaking of Zelda, we had wondered if that was going to tie back in, if she would have to somehow go help Harriet. Uh, we do see this mirror bridge. I have to think that's how it's going to come together. And the one after that, which is the last one we have a synopsis for, Home Improvement, says, Penny licks an egg. Alice is jealous of a flower. Hmm. So very vague again, but something to chew on in the meantime.
1: We want to thank the Clatchers again for being part of the crew. Keep telling your friends about us. Follow us on our social media. And if you really love what we're doing, check us out on Patreon. Until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me. Try again.